this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dan Moran. I am thrilled to be here today with Michael Newton. Michael is a lecturer of English at Leiden University in the Netherlands. He's the author of several books, among them Show People, A History of the Film Star. He's written two books for the BFI Film Classic series, one on Kind Hearts and Coronets, another on Rosemary's Baby, and he's just published a third one on a third great movie on Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. We're thrilled to have him here today. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hi, Daniel. Pleased to be here. So first, I have to congratulate you before we even start with the questions about writing a book about this film, because this is not a movie that people see once or twice and say, well, let me read up on that and see what it's about. I mean, this is a movie like Casablanca or or 2001 or Die Hard or The Godfather that people see dozens of times. I mean, they have this movie memorized. I have a friend who puts a sign over her mantle every Christmas that says, you are now in Bedford Falls. And you come along and and presume to tell all these Uber fans all these new stories and new interpretations of the film, and you actually do it. So well done. I just have to say that at the beginning. That's really good to hear. Thanks. So early on, you say about Frank Capra, let's talk about Frank Capra for a moment, the director. You say, of all directors, Frank Capra is the most loved and least respected. Explain that. Uh, yeah, I'm going to explain it by telling a little anecdote about, about Capra. Um, Capra did a movie called um, It Happened One Night with uh, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, and it uh, did a clean sweep at the Oscars. So it won it won all five major Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director, Actor, Actress, um, Screenplay. Uh, there's a great Freud essay called um, uh, On Those Who Are Wrecked by Success. And immediately after kind of... Um, Having this enormous success with this movie, Capra had a kind of mini breakdown where he felt sort of unable to um, to to make films. He wasn't sure what he was doing anymore. He felt like he'd lost his butt. And he, he recounts this story of a, a mysterious little man. It's, it's typically who this little man is, or it's a kind of figment of his, of his imagination, who came to Capra and said, you know, kind of, you're really talented. You've got to... Um, uh, you've got to use your gifts, your God-given gifts to make great movies, get out there and make those movies. 
And then in that kind of in that moment, Capra changed direction hugely. So they've been kind of making these kind of fast-paced um, movies of Barbara Stanwyck and uh, Gene Harlow, and it's kind of they're really sort of uh, funny. Those are the movies that critics like. And but then he started making what people really associate now with Frank Capra. These kind of message, these movies with a, a social message, like uh, Mr. Dees goes to town, or uh, Mr. Smith uh, goes to Washington, and so on. And it's those films that critics really hate. So there's this kind of, this kind of division between the fact that Capra, as you've already been saying, we're talking about you know these kind of uber fans. Capra's a director who's made movies that that viewers really love. Um, but critics have really very often looked down on him. There's this there's this kind of um, term used to describe his movies at Capricorn that they are uh, you know kind of schmaltzy. They're sweet, sickly, sentimental. Um, this is a great book by David Thompson, a biographical uh, history of film. It's a great book because it's so opinionated. And in his opinion about Capra, he really aggressively dismisses him, in a way kind of for political reasons. He sees him as a sort of apologist for uh, an American dream that, that he deems to be fake. And I think there's that, that sense that Capra kind of doesn't quite measure up. That people, you know, they understand that he's a big seller, that he, you know, kind of people love his movies, but critics are very kind of apt to dismiss him. And I think one thing I wanted to do in the book was be part of, I guess, a kind of, you know, a, another movement, a counter movement that points out just how great he is. And that certainly comes through in the book. Um, I love the story about the little man coming to visit him. It's almost like he met Clarence the Angel or something. It's very like <laughs> Clarence the Angel. So let's talk about the screenplays. You tell I thought this was fascinating in the book. You tell the story of the film's different screenplays. Now, all of us fans know that the film was based on a short story by Philip Van Doren Stern called The Greatest Gift. But what people may not know, what I certainly didn't know, is how many drafts and arguments, the arguments went into the final product. So you point out that there were these different iterations of the screenplay and how the writers dealt with the challenge of dramatizing George Bailey's wish to see what life would like if he were never born. To all of us now, it seems that showing Bedford Falls and like essentially reshowing the movie without George in it is the most natural way to go. But you point out, no, there were these other things where George kind of fights himself. So can you talk about the screenplay and how it evolved? Uh, it's, a it's a complex picture, Daniel. And I think um, so initially the film was going to be a Cary Grant vehicle. Um, uh, that's the kind of unmade movie which I'd be interested to see. I'm glad it was Jimmy's Jimmy Stewart, otherwise, although I love Cary Grant. Um, he just done a movie called um, None But the Brave, I think, and um, uh, with Clifford Odets. And he was interested in it, I think, really in a way for its kind of social message. Uh, and there was a series of versions of the films. First of all, a guy called Mark Connolly had a go at writing it. Um, while he was writing it, they called in uh, Dalton Trumbo, who's a kind of, you know, kind of, a very famous uh, screenwriter from that time. Um, that version sort of didn't go anywhere. They brought in Clifford Odets himself. He had a go. Um, and uh, interestingly, a lot of these writers uh, were on the left. Um, left wing or communists. A lot of them kind of ended up being um, kind of investigated by the House uh, you know, Committee on American Activities. Um, later on, Dorothy Parker would contribute a little bit um, to the film. Most of it got cut, but there's a, there's a few kind of bits of di her dialogue in the movie. A guy called Michael Wilson got involved, also on the left. He ended up being, you know, kind of before the committee with McCarthy. Um, 
and when the when the idea was sold to Canberra, um, it had basically fallen through. All these scripts didn't go anywhere. Um, it was sold to him by this guy called Charles Kerner. He said, you know, here, here's a great idea for a movie. Here are the scripts. And and Kerner felt and Capra felt after him uh, that none of the scripts had got the idea. That there, there was a kind of central idea in the film and they'd all confused it. They And they do these things where George meets George II. And they end up fighting each other. And uh, um, he ends up kind of um, committing adultery with his own wife. And various things that the, that uh, Capra's film decided would be too complex and too uh, silly, maybe to um, uh, to bring in. It's a much better film than it would have been. Um, he brought in these these two writers, Francis uh, Goodrich and Albert Hackett, who were kind of uh, a couple, a screenwriting team. They'd done the the Thin Man films, uh, William Powell and uh, Myrna Loy, and they themselves a little bit like the Thin Man. A uh, couple relationship, kind of wisecracking, uh, you know, teasing each other. They did a version. Capra didn't even like that version, <laughs> overly. So he took it over himself. And there was a sense, I think, in, in all these kind of iterations of the script, that there was some central idea there that Capra felt no one was getting. Um, and in the end, I think he, he felt that he was had to be the person uh, who got it. I think... Um, He's probably right. It's a shame in a way that these, the Odette's version, the Trumbo version, they'd be great movies, but they wouldn't be the classic that we know. We wouldn't be watching those those movies every Christmas, I don't think. So there's a kind of this search for the, the key thing, the essential thing, is uh, what was going on, really. Right. And it seems like it's like, you know, it seems so intuitive to do that last part without George. But you you point out in the book, there was one scenario had George seeing what his life would have been like if he became very selfish and think you would have seen like the evil George and all these different versions of him. Yes, I think in a way, one thing that's quite interesting to me is that that this, this, this idea of a kind of evil George, a George who's got corrupted and compromised and the good George who gets a second chance and the evil George gets replaced by Mr. Potter. Right. In a way, right. in, the, in the in the early versions, the villain is the other. The villain is the other George, and, right. and by creating Mr. Potter, you kind of get a, a different dynamic going in the movie. Let's talk about Mr. Potter and Mary and George. So you point out you have a great line in the book. You say a star is a mythic version of the self. So let's go through that and apply that to the three leads. So we have Jimmy Stewart. Obviously, we have Donna Reed and Lionel Barrymore. So can you talk a little bit about you know each of these and like how they were cast and, and you know what they brought to the film? I think that idea that the star is a kind of um, like a person turned into an archetype is maybe another way to put it. Uh, in a way, that works best for James Stewart. There's, there was a great survey, I think, done in the 1990s uh, towards the end of uh, Jimmy Stewart's life. And, so, and it was to find out, you know, who's the most trusted man in America? And uh, the winner by a clear margin was uh, Jimmy Stewart. And... Uh, and that shows the extent to which um, I think James Stewart kind of entered uh, the consciousness of the nation, in a sense, and stood, you know, in people's minds. And Stewart himself reflects on this. You know, he said in interviews, I'm, I'm not John Wayne. I'm not super macho. I'm not Cary Grant. I'm not super elegant or super, you know, I'm I'm anybody. And uh, that he brought to the part of George Bailey this capacity to be a kind of everyman figure. Somebody, um, you know, kind of of any class, they feel they can identify um, with George. Uh, there was always a bit of a little vein of irritability in James Stewart, even in his early movies, Philadelphia Story, 
there's a kind of capacity in him to get angry. This comes out in It's a Wonderful Life. And you can see how, you know, in the 50s with those great Hitchcock films, you know, Rear Window and uh, Vertigo, um, the anti-man westerns, that uh, this kind of darkness that later films would discover in James Stewart. And that he was interestingly willing to go with, you know, he kind of, he wasn't uh, um, restricting himself. He allowed himself to express the darkness in a way that shows what a great actor he is. But I think that, that also comes into It's a Wonderful Life. It's like a little kind of um, watershed moment in his career where you start to see the dark version of Jimmy Stewart, but at the same time, you're reassured, you're consoled, you're identifying with this sort of Tom Hanksy, every man kind of guy. guy. Um, and I think the film plays on that. Uh, Donna Reed is clearly uh, much more an unknown quantity. I mean, she'd been in a, a couple of films, most notably in a, in a great war film, John Ford war film, uh, They Were Expendable. Um, but she's what she's bringing, I think, to the movie is the lack of a, of a mythic, uh, <laughs> an archetypal uh, basis. She's young. It's a bit like casting Dustin Hoffman in The, in the Graduate, 1967. When, when Dustin Hoffman's in The Graduate, no one knows who he is. And because you don't know who he is, he can play youth and you completely, he becomes, you know, Benjamin Braddock. That's who he is. And Donna Reed is Mary Hatch and that's who she is. I mean, uh, it's not quite, she had done some other films, but I think it's more or less true. Um, The great contrast with Donna Reed is with Gloria Graham as Violet Bick. The Gloria Graham, you know, goes on to be this kind of great uh, film noir, femme fatale figure in a lonely place and the big heat, those kind of movies. And Donna Reed goes on to do the Donna Reed show <laughs> and to be this sort of um, this wonderful uh, exemplar of, uh, you know, the nuclear family, the bourgeois family, as I would say. Um, she does, her Oscar is for From Here to Eternity, where she does, in a sense, play Violet Bick. She plays a kind of more... Um, you know, a fallen woman, as they might have thought in the 1940s. But I think what she's bringing to It's a Wonderful Life is a kind of freshness, a kind of youthfulness. Um, and and she's fantastic in it, I would say. Lana Barrymore is interesting. He's a great figure, obviously, he's a great theatrical family and then film family at the Barrymores. Um, but there was always something a bit lovable about Lionel Barrymore. Uh, interestingly, he'd been in a previous uh, Capra film, You Can't Take It With You, where he's playing this kind of eccentric um, millionaire figure, somebody who doesn't care about money at all, the the complete uh, antithesis of uh, Mr. Potter. And I would say that some some level of exuberance of ebullience of likability goes into Mr. Potter. He's a villain that you kind of, you know, you you're ready to boo him and so on. You're on George Bailey's side. But no one watching the film hates him, I don't think. Um, he's too likable for that. And so I think the, it, the casting in all these cases is bringing kind of levels of complexity and interest in the film that are really uh, great to see. Yeah, he's supposed to be a warped, frustrated old man, but you also can't stop thinking, like, he'd be he'd be an interesting guy to hang out with, Lionel Barrymore. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and so, of course, so, he's a kind of double for George. I mean, yes, he says, you know, I'm, I'm a warped, frustrated old man. You're a warped, frustrated young man <laughs> right exactly. and um, two of them uh, are more involved with each other than they would like to admit yeah they're a great they're a great uh you know couple in the movie of the great they're a great hero villain couple they each match the other one so well that's completely true i agree yeah 
So let's get into the film. So that's the backstory. Let's get into the film that we all know by heart. So everybody knows in the beginning of the film, everybody in Bedford Falls is praying for George Bailey. And you characterize that with a phrase I thought was so interesting. I want to get get you to expand upon. You say that in the beginning of the movie, this is your, your quote here, quote, the film risks the embarrassment of prayer. What did you mean by that? Um, well, you've got to remember, Daniel, I'm British, <laughs> therefore easily embarrassed. <laughs> and I'm writing in the Netherlands, um, which is one of the most secular countries uh, in um, in the world. Um, and I think there is a kind of, I notice, I mean, I, I teach uh, film and literature, and people get sort of awkward, um, you know, uh, embarrassed, uh, shy when religion comes up. It's something which um, they don't want, they don't want to go there. One thing which is interesting about the film is it's readiness to go there. Um, the film is definitely engaging with the supernatural. It's engaging with the spiritual. Um, Capra was a Roman Catholic. He became increasingly Catholic. Um, he ended up being ordained as a kind of lay preacher in the Catholic Church. Um, I think those energies are there. And of course, it's also there in the time uh, more broadly. Um, in Hitchcock's film, The Wrong Man, it's a bit, you know, it's like 12 years later. Um, Henry Fonda prays with the rosary that he'll get off the crime he's been accused of. And it works. The prayer, <laughs> he prays and the prayer works. In um, Graham Greene's novel, shortly after uh, It's a Wonderful Life, The End of the Affair, um, a young woman makes praise that uh, her lover, who's just been killed by a bomb, will come back to life. And he does <laughs> come back to life. And I think um, film then, uh, novels then, the culture generally, obviously with the experience of the war and the horrors of the war that people were, you know, were going through or just recently gone through, uh, very much in the mix, um, they were readier to to engage with the spiritual, ready, readier to engage with the religious and supernatural in ways than audiences are now. And the film definitely um, takes those things seriously. Yeah, they all, all everyone in Bedford Falls. First of all, you get the prayer in the very beginning, so you don't even know what the crisis is yet. But everybody's also praying without irony. Yes, yeah, and I think um, if you did a prayer now, it'd be like in Home Alone, where um, you, know, you go to the church, you'd have to be in quotes, or you know, you'd have to make it a joke. Uh, I mean, in a way, the really great prayer is um, when George is praying in the bar later on, and. Um, where the acting is so, I mean, it's, it's so powerful, it's not even acting anymore. People people have seen seen him in that moment as kind of tapping into the trauma that he'd been through as a bomber pilot uh, in the US Air Force in World War II. Um, there are no quotation marks around that act. There's no irony there. There's nothing postmodern about this, about this movie. It is completely heartfelt and it is completely heartbreaking, I think, when you're watching it. It's a, it's a wonderful moment. And you agree with you absolutely. Yeah. So let, so let's go back now. Before George's moment of crisis, he's in Bedford Falls. What kind of place is it? How would you characterize Bedford Falls? Um, I think it's a great line by John Cassavetes. I think it's John Cassavetes. So, you know, kind of, you know, maybe there never was an America. There was only Frank Capra. And you know, clearly, uh, the movie is tapping into something really deep. Um, 
in America's sense of itself, uh, this image of the small town. And, um, and you see it in a, in a play, in a movie, which um, I think kind of influences its wonderful life, which is Thornton Wilder's Our Town, which is uh, just a, an amazing, amazing play for me, I would say. You see it in Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt, other texts of the time. That there's this kind of this creation of this um, idyllic place, um, which seems to be outside of history, outside of, uh, you know, trouble and, you know, all these things. Of course, one thing Capra wants to do is to show how much um, history is present in the town. The town is going through um, what used to be called, you know, the Spanish influenza um, pandemic. It goes through the Great Depression, runs on the bank, uh, the effects of the war. It goes through the building of a plastics factory. You know, there is a serious economic basis to what's, to how people make their living in, in Bedford Falls. It's not it's not this idyllic place. It's a place which is definitely kind of within the flow of history. Yet it's bringing up something just really resonant and, and mythic, I think, for people, this, this idea of a good place. Um, so it's partly that. The critics who've written about the play, one thing about the play, the film, which is a one, one thing they really they hate Bedford Falls. And I lost in, in you know every year there'll be a journalist who'll do a smart article um, about the film in which they'll say you know how much hipper, how much happier Pottersville is than Bed, you know Bedford Falls. Pottersville looks you know looks groovy, it's exciting. There are you know all night all night bars, better night life, yeah. better much better night. <laughs> A nightlife, <laughs> any kind. Um, it's uh, it's almost a cliche now, kind of contrarian uh, journalism. That to to find Bedford Falls as being suspect, dull, boring, everybody's into each other's business. Uh, it's much more fractious than people uh, want to say. I think that's in the film. The film does show kind of the sense that you can't get away from other people's, you know, judgments and eyes. You know, when when he's making that great speech to Violet Bick about going up on the mountain to have this date. And then, you know, the camera pans back and there's, there's 20 people watching him. <laughs> you know, the whole, the whole town is gathered to, to be part of this moment. You know, when he's trying to, when he's, uh, yeah. after the well, dance, when he's with Mary, you know, somebody at the porch, you know, kiss her for God's sake. <laughs> Why don't you kiss her instead of talking her to death? Yeah, exactly. There's, there's nothing you could do where people aren't watching. And, um, and critics are really kind of, they tapped into another American myth, in, which is, you know, the myth of the open road. The myth of going out to the frontier, of uh, the lone cowboy, of traveling, you know, George lassoes the moon, and all this kind of thing. And, um, and their sympathies are really with that. They're really with this other American archetype. Um, and they see George as trapped in a kind of, like the film is a kind of Kafka. You know, Franz Kafka's is a wonderful um, where you're, you know, you're stuck in the same town. No matter what you try to do, you can't get out of it. You can't even have a honeymoon. You're just um, there is something kind of potentially confining or constricting there. The film touches on that. It's in the movie, but it's not the whole story. Pottersville is filled with prohibitions. You know, don't go here. If you just look around that town, the way that all these signs telling you what you can't do. W women are really. Um, they have a hard time in Bedford Falls. You know, they kind of uh, they're stuck in the feminine mystique and all that kind of stuff. But in Pottersville, they're on sale. 
it's women who are the commodity. It's women who are the commodity in those bars. Um, it's not, you know, kind of a simple thing where you can simply endorse one or the other. I think um, the film shows the complexities of being in Bedford Falls, uh, but ultimately it shows what's what's good about that good place. Yeah. Even if it is a myth, right? Like, like if, if someone, you know, guffawed or poo-pooed the film and said to you, well, Michael, you know, you know, the better for falls is just a big myth. But wouldn't you say that like those scenes, for example, when he goes back to when Mary recreates the house and has the turntable going and, and Bert and Ernie are singing outside the window that, that we know watching it now, how mythical that is, but you can't deny the myth's power, right? Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a really good thought. And I think, um, you know, there's a reason why we have myths. That's the reason why we have these archetypes, and I think it's something which uh, you know the psyche needs. We need we need some kind of vision of what it would be to be a good place. Yeah, because and, in so um, many sorry, no, go on. Thank I was going to say in so many small towns now in America, like you know, people don't know each other, and you don't know who the cab driver is, or who the local cop is, or who runs the building alone. That now people are more and more isolated and more you know in their little silos. But Bedford Falls is an imaginary place where wouldn't it be cool if you walk down the street and you could wave to everybody and hand out newspapers about your brother? Yes, I mean that's I, I used to live in an American small town near you, and um, I got repetitive strain injury from waving so much. Right, <laughs> <laughs> I walked, I had to wave to. <laughs> All these acquaintances, and um, so I think it, I mean it can exist uh, in certain instances. You know, kind of university, you know, a campus is a kind of uh, that kind of can be that kind of community. Not always, but it can be. Um, but I think it is um, it's enticing, yeah. And it's this idea of knowing your neighbours. It may be mythic, although I think it was a little bit less mythic then. Um, now I think it really, you know. Everything, you know, the world of strip malls and uh, kind of, uh, you know, it's not downtown to go to. Um, right, right. Uh, but I think I really want to say about the film, I've been thinking about it again, partly because I knew I was going to be talking to you, Daniel, like, but, um, uh, which is, um, it's not nostalgic. The what, the perf the kind of the image it's, given, it's setting is giving you is America in 1946, and of course the people in your now you could be selling an image of America in 1946 as it is not, but it's not it's not saying well things were really great in the 1910s, you know things were really in the 1890s then the neighbors knew each other. The film is bringing up the possibility that in the, in the moment it comes out you could still know each other. In the moment when the film is first screened in the cinemas. Um, there is this possibility for community and connection and kinship and family and friendship and love and all those things. Um, it may be kind of, you know, selling you something mythic, but it's not placing that mythic version of America somewhere in, in the past. It's now, it's here, it's now. And I think that is uh, um, a striking element in the film. That it's not only looking backwards, it's looking, it's looking into what might be possible then in that yeah. moment of its of its being made and george is right in the middle of that right because george does want the security of bedford falls he wants to do the right thing but he also wants to remember the most exciting sound is a train whistle a boat whistle he wants to go out of the open road as well right he's like right in the middle yes i think it is i mean it's that kind of um that sense of george's frustration he's a frustrated right. walked a young man yeah. he's somebody who wants to get you know you, you mentioned the honeymoon scene um, what they're trying to do is he, he's not going to go to the South Seas. He's not going to get on a boat and, you know, sail out to Tahiti. Yeah. So you bring Tahiti to Bedford. 
to bed with balls. And um, there's something kind of sweet about that. Um, but there is something potentially um, entrapping about it. And yes. I think that's it. George's life, uh, the film doesn't shy away from the fact that there are losses in it. And that there's a wonderful moment when his brother comes back from college. Absolutely. And uh, and you find out his brother's got engaged, and you know, and George, one more time, he's not going to get away. And there's this there's this close up on George's face, and you see the loss. You see the unlived life that you know he you now know he's not going to have. And the film is completely frank and candid in showing that. It's yeah. it's one of the reasons why the film is so powerful. Is it gives a weight to that to that truth. Yeah. And Harry knows it. What he's, oh, I was going to talk to you about that later, but even ha his brother knows darn well what a disappointment that is to George in that moment. Yeah, they do. And I think, um, yeah, and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it, it really is. is. Absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, the film is, it, I think it's a film that makes you cry and it can make you cry from, you know, the 15th minute. <laughs> yeah. Not only, at the end, not only at the end. Because you're like Clarence, right? Like you've grown up with this guy. So you've watched him say like, uh, you know, say, Brandless, don't you know where coconuts come from? And you want him so much to go see the coconuts. And then you're just yes. like, oh, like he's not going to get to go. No. So so let's talk about the. You said community. And, and this film is also notable for something it does really well. There are so many minor characters that seem fleshed out. Like we mentioned before, like Ernie, the taxi driver. You have Bert the cop. But there's like Uncle Bill, you know, Mr. Gower, you know, Martini, Nick the bartender. You got Eustace with the adding machine. You mentioned Violet. Mm -hmm. um, even the tollbooth guy who falls down in his chair. Yeah. Like the bank examiner who wants to see his family in Elmira. Like, what do you think this long roster of all these secondary figures does for the film as a whole and for these themes you've been talking about? Um, Frank Capra's son, Frank Capra Jr., um, has talked about, you know, how, how Capra used to work on set. And the way he worked on set with extras is that every every extra, and, the, and that word has its kind of resonance, <laughs> its resonances, um, was given their own story in that bank in the bank run scene, which is kind of this great scene in the movie where you know they, they run on the there's a run on the bank and all the people in that room, um, Capra had engaged with them as individuals. And I think one thing which sometimes the film is critiqued by people who say you know kind of something a little bit uh, specious or fake in this idea that you know George has a wonderful life, <laughs> kind of you know good for George, you know. Uh, what about you know what about Varda? what about Varda's <laughs> wonderful life um but that really is against the spirit of how capra is making his films he really he really believes in the individual he doesn't believe in the idea of the mass he doesn't think there is a mass um there are no masses there's just lots and lots of individual people each of whom has their own biography their own dreams their own desires their own tragedies their own comedies um and the film is doing its best, although the focus is on George, it's his life we're seeing, to remind us by, you know, kind of little insights. I think one I really find moving is Uncle Billy, um, who's a kind of a joke figure. He's a joke drunk figure, you know, kind of um, this absent-minded guy. And you suddenly discover near the end of the film that he's widowed um, and that in his house, he has a little kind of, he's kept his wife's room, Laura. He kept, he's kept Laura's room intact. And suddenly you see why he's drinking. 
you see why you know why he is as he is, why he might be distracted, that he's somebody who is um, bereft. And the film is just so good at opening up these possibilities for individuality in Ernie, in Mr. Gower, in, in Uncle Billy, in Violet, and all these other characters. It's not the focus isn't only on George. Right. It's about the the value of the individual. But the film is very much aware that all the individuals have value, not just George. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, that's a great point. If you ask maybe Thomas Mitchell hypothetically what the movie was about, he'd say it's about this guy who's very sad about his, his the passing of his wife, who's trying to keep it together. He makes a terrible mistake and gives five thousand dollars to the wrong person. Like you know, every every person in the movie can kind of say the movie's about them. Yes, and that is a strength. I think and yeah. quite unusual in movies. I mean, it's sort of um, right. It's, uh, I mean, some films do it, but really to give you a sense that people aren't there for bit. They're not bit parts. There is no bit part. Right. Everybody, everybody's their own center, and they're, and they're all, in some sense, the center of the film. I want to go back to what you said before about David Thompson and his opinions, which are always fun to read, and about how people kind of dump on Capra. Capra had already made Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. That comes out in 1939. And you say this about the politics of the movie, and I want to get your reaction to this quotation. You say, quote, the politics of the film are perhaps really in the eye of the beholder, and that the movies become a means by which the viewer claims their political place and the film lurches leftward or rightwards, just as the critic decides. Talk about that. Yeah, I think, again, I think one thing which, uh, maybe this is a, a, I'm a critic. God help me. <laughs> That's what I am. And critics love complexity. They love it when something is complex and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, maybe there's something a bit fake about, about that. But actually, I mean, what's really great to me, well, one thing that's really great to me about it's a wonderful life. Is how complex it is, and it's also true of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington as well, which is another wonderful movie. And um, and one thing that makes it complex is it's really, really hard to determine what its what its politics are. And um, as I mentioned, a lot of kind of left wing thinking uh, went into the development of It's a Wonderful Life. A lot of people who were um, in the Communist Party are involved in writing early scripts, and a lot of those. And I didn't say this. Uh, when I was answering your question earlier, Daniel, but kind of um, a lot of the elements of the early scripts get into the final film. It's not that they kind of uh, tear them up and start again. They keep bringing in a scene here, a moment there, a thought, a thought from that script, a thought from this other script. So the kind of the the impress of those ideas um, do get into the into the movie we know. Um, and yet, one reason why critics hate the film is critics tend to be on the left, not always, but they tend to be on the left, and they really see it as uh, it's, it's a conservative film. But in its endorsement of the small town, it's in, in its endorsement of um, this kind of mythic version of America, even in its endorsement of prayer, perhaps, for some people, um, its, its values are reactionary values, the values of the past, kind of its, um, its fate. David Mamet, uh, the playwright and uh, scriptwriter, you know, he wrote an interesting essay about the film, basically savaging it, um, put it on political grounds, you know, saying, you know, the film is saying, you know, 
the world would be okay if there was a kindly banker. All we need is <laughs> all we need is a nice, a nice, and if only bankers were nice, everything would be yeah. okay. And um, and Mamet, you know, says, you know, what what other crap? You know, <laughs> there are no kindly bankers. Bankers are out to make money. They're making money from you. And um, uh, so there is that critique. But I think so there are people on the left who who savage it for being right wing. But I've also encountered uh, uh, right wing writers, in particular, a conservative politician uh, in the UK, where I'm from, um, who savage it as being left wing, um, you know, kind of uh, so, so another kind of um, contrarian cliche is that the true hero of the film is Mr. Potter. And, you know, kind of he's, he's the guy who's got get up and go. Um, he's the one who's trying to make money and, you know, pursuing things. Um, if the world were done as you know, kind of uh, organised, as Mr. Potter would organise it, how great it would be. Um, now, clearly, the film doesn't think <laughs> doesn't think that. Um, and I think it's it's like a sort of it's like a kaleidoscope. You see, you shake it, and the, and you see it as okay. It's oh, it's it's a, it's a socialist film. It's saying community is good. Then you shake it again, and you say, ah, it's a conservative film. It's saying that community is good. <laughs> so. Um, it, it's uh, so it has been, you know, it's both kind of um, shot by both sides, you know, kind of both, you know, both sides who want to take the political kind of um, view of it are ready to kind of put it down for one reason or the other. But it also, in this kind of shimmering, complex way, it, it allows what's good about both sides to get expressed. Um, and I think it's so. It's hard to determine the politics of the film. It's, it's, but that's what I would say. It's kind of there's so much going on in the movie. You can really read it very strongly as a conservative film, or you can read it very strongly as a socialist film, and you both be right. It's not a kind of either or thing. It's a both and thing. Capra himself was not left wing. He he was a Republican voter. He didn't like Roosevelt. Um, didn't like the New Deal. Um, Captain Hepburn said his politics are really you know kind of just American. He just, you know, he just, he come from Italy, and he just said his his politics were, "I'm pleased to be here." That's basically that's basically it. That's kind of, and and maybe that in the end is right. It's sort of the the film is endorsing a vision of America, and that means it takes on kind of slantwise political tinges. But those tinges are kind of up to you as well as because the film is is leaving everything possible. Right. And do you think you think the longer the time goes on from the, the date of the release, it becomes harder and harder to be to see the kaleidoscope? Or do you think I wonder if people today are so divided sometimes that they could only see one one angle of the movie? And, and I love the idea of the kaleidoscope. Um, it could be. I mean, we're living in polarized times and um, uh, there's a great quote, the, the French critic André Bazin, he's, he's writing about uh, De Sica's film, The Bicycle Thieves. And what he says is, you know, kind of, the, the vision of love in that film is so powerful that everyone wanted to lay claim to it. So the communists said, it's communist love. It's communist love. <laughs> and the Roman Catholic said, it's Roman Catholic <laughs> love. And, um, uh, but the point is that it's love. <laughs> That's what I would say. Um, I mean, De Sica was, in a way, both communist and Catholic. So, both, again, both possibilities are, are open in that movie. And, and I think those, the same is true. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was going to say all the, all the same is true here, right? And all those things are supposed to transcend our day-to-day -day politics, like love, like a desire for home, like family, like community. Those, those are supposed to transcend the political headlines of the day, right? Yeah, and I think they do. 
Yeah. I mean, I, th I think you yeah. can take a political um, lens to the movie. But what I would say is kind of, in, in a sense, the love in It's a Wonderful Life is of such a quality that everyone wants to lay claim to it. Right. And, right. Um, oh. and I think everyone can. It's, it's, it's a polarized world, but the film isn't polarizing you. It's, it's bringing you in um, if, you, if you allow it to. At least it wants to bring you in. So you talk about misreadings in the in the book as well, and you talk you talked earlier in this interview about how some people say, well, Pottersville is really the place you'd want to be, and things like that. And I want to talk about a misreading you bring up about George's meltdown. We'll call it his meltdown, for lack of a better term, yeah. right? So you say that moment he comes home, everything's annoying him. You know, must he keep playing that? And how do you spell Frankincense? Which is a great, great scene. And he's upset about the five thousand dollars. He smashes his architecture model. And you say that people have said that's an example of George's hatred of Bedford Falls, his hatred of his home and his family. And you point out, like, no, no, that's a total misreading. Okay, Why do you think that's a misreading? Um, yeah, I think for those people who really see the film as being um, kind of unwittingly subversive, is that, you know, kind of basically George really hates this place and the film is an expression of the hate. And, you know, the film is interesting to those people because it's doing the thing which it says it's not doing. It says it's sticking up for you know, small-town values. Actually, it's kind of, it is doing the dirt on small-town values. But I think I do think they're misreading the film, and, and that moment is a great example of it, because he's not only furious. Um, he is a person in that scene at the end of his tether, and um, he's not only angry in that scene, he's crying. Um, they're comforting him. He... In particular, he's doing it with um, with Zuzu when he goes upstairs, but also downstairs. Um, he's trying to be gentle. He's trying to be tender. Um, when he gets furious on the phone to uh, to Zuzu's teacher, you know he's angry. He's kind of <laughs> the anger's coming out, but the anger is coming out of his protectiveness towards Zuzu. And I think um, so. I think there's kind of one thing which is wrong with sort of uh, doctrinaire political readings of the movie is they flatten out those moments. They don't pick up that it's complex. He's not just furious and smashing the architectural model, which is his model, by the way. It's not his kids. It's his own. That's his hobby. He's making these architectural models. Um, uh, he's also loving in that scene. He's crying. He's um, and it's. The, first, the moment there, as I, and I think elsewhere where people kind of try to pin it down as one thing or another, Jimmy Stewart is such a good actor and the movie is such a good movie that it, that it actually is much more truthful to the moment because it brings in the, poss the other possibilities of coexisting in the fury. Um, so, yeah, that's, that would be my reading of what's going on there, yeah. Yeah, he's not Jack Nicholson in The Shining, who really does hate his family and whose yeah. anger really, whose anger really is at them for being them. Like Jimmy Stewart's anger is a combination of things and about what's he going to do now and I'm going to go to jail. But he's he's certainly not Jack Nicholson at the Overlook Hotel, right? No, and I think I mean there's a there's a horrible, scary moment in The Shining where he's kind of comforting Danny on the bed. Yeah, yeah. and and even even his even Jack Nicholson's even you know right. 
Torrance, Jack Torrance's uh, kind of um, tenderness is threatening. Yes, well, yeah, I would never yeah. hurt you. Somebody, <laughs> I'm never going to ne- hurt you. <laughs> yeah, I'm never going to hurt you. And all of a sudden, your stomach hurts a little more. Yes, exactly. So all that that's funny. That's like Jack Nicholson's Zuzu pedal scene. But yes. of course, it goes totally wrong in The Shining as it's meant Absolutely. to, right? Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about the Zuzu's pedal scene. That was my favorite passage in your book. You say that Zuzu's pedals that he has in his pocket, right? And when he tries to heal the flower... You say that those mm. petals are like the film itself. How so? Yeah, this is, um, what's he doing with those petals? I mean, one, th- one thing he's been doing is he's been lying to Zuzu. Um, he's been deceiving her. It's an act of deception, but it's an act of deception, which everybody knows is loving. But he's doing it out of his kindness. He's not doing, he's not, um, so that's the first thing I'm saying. It's a kind of, it's a kind of gentle deception. That you, you pretend to, you know, the feverish Suzu, that, you know, the flower's not damaged, that what's broken can be mended. So the, the fact that those petals are in his pocket, they're only there because of an act of kindness in the first place. Um, but he's also kind of, I think he's kind of, they become a kind of magic for him too. And the film does a kind of a conjuring trick, which only film could do, which is, you know, they're there, they're gone. Suzu, I put them in, you know, he conceals them like, uh, you know, a conjurer to, at the hotel table going um but then they're gone for him as well and they're gone for us and when they when they come back um their their return is part of his return to his family to mary to zuzu to the rest of the kids to all his friends to bedford falls um and a return to the disappointing um he's happy that his lip is bleeding he's happy He's happy that he's snowing, that it's snowing. You know? it's, he's, he's happy that he's bankrupt and heading for jail um, because all those things are life. So Zeus's petals, they, they acquire this kind of resonance of this magical trick that the, that the film is doing. This is one, my favourite Shakespeare play is a play he did called um, The Winter's Tale. And in that play, um, a character dies, killed by the jealousy of her husband. And at the at the end of the play, um, uh, his that character, you know, the murderous husband's uh, kind of um, female friend says, "I'm going to bring her back uh, as a statue." He goes to see the statue, and um, and the statue comes back to life, and his wife returns to him. She's not dead; she's resurrected. Um, and there's a great line that uh, that the woman who's kind of staging the scene says. She says to the murderous husband. Um, it is time you must awake your faith. And I think the film is asking you to awake your faith, in a sense. There's a faith in art, among other things. The art can do these things. It can bring people back. It can, bring Zeus's, it can take away Zeus's petals. It can bring them back. It can take away George from Bedford Falls. It can put it back in Bedford Falls. Um, but also, I think, a kind of faith in the possibility of goodness, a faith in the possibility of connection and, and so on. So that that's what I mean by it. You know, there's Zeus's petals. It's a it's a trick that George is playing, and it kind of moves into a trick that the film is playing, and then it moves into beyond that a kind of trick that um, the angel is playing. And well, all, talk- all three, go on, go ahead, Doug. Go ahead. All three, yeah, what? I think all, all three are sort of happening at once, and that's 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 really kind of um, that's just, the beauty of the film is in that moment. 
Yeah, that's 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 terrific. I love how they all come together. I was going to say, well, let's talk about that angel, right? Let's talk about Clarence. You've been talking about magic. You know, Clarence is this angel of innocence. And you say, you know, he's like a child, as as Joseph says in the beginning, right? And you argue that Clarence is some is someone who chooses to be naive. And you say that, you know, we should be like Clarence and choose to be naive sometimes. So uh, talk about that word, choose. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm being uh, naughty. <laughs> <laughs> it's, because, it's, uh, it's my book i get to be, get to be naughty um because of course the one thing you can't do is choose to be naive um if you pretend to be simple then you're doing something really complicated <laughs> complicated um you end up you know like marie antoinette pretending she's a shepherdess in the in the parks of versailles and um you know you're fooling no one um, so in that sense, you, you really can't uh, choose to be naive. What I, what, I, what I kind of would say about it is, um, you know, for, for critics who hate the film, you know, if, they're, if the prayer is embarrassing, it is nowhere near as embarrassing as that angel. I mean, <laughs> the, moment, you know, the moment Clarence turns up, Clarence's old body, um, you know, it, it's sort of like, oh, my God, what's happened here? You know, just, we're in the realms of fantasy. And they don't like fantasy. What they like about the film is when it's realist. They don't like it when it's um, when it's reaching out for a kind of magic, when it's reaching out for the supernatural, for the spiritual, for the strange. And it's a funny, it's a funny supernatural. Clarence is um, is he makes me laugh. I mean, he made, I've seen the, I haven't seen the film as much as my friend who sees it every year in cinema in Edinburgh. But I've seen it a good 15, 16 times, 20 times, I would say. And uh, he's always funny. It's a quirky supernatural, but it is a supernatural. And, um, and what I would say is the film is tapping into that part of yourself. You know, we're all grown up. We've all kind of um, made compromises. We've all done stuff we wish we hadn't. Um, none of us are great people. Uh, there are things we regret, but there's still something childlike in us. There's still a possibility in us for embracing um, the childlike, and not the childish, but the childlike. And what I would say is that the film allows you that possibility that you could do that there, that you can accept Clarence. You can accept that it's in the film. You can enjoy it. You can be moved by it. You can laugh at it. You can laugh with it. And that's in a sense what I mean. That kind of and it, the film does a really hard thing, you know, being in Clarence. It could go, it could go very wrong. Um, for some critics, it does go very wrong. But for those critics, it would go wrong no matter what happened. <laughs> <laughs> the moment there's, there's no, an angel, there's no it's pleasing wrong. some people. <laughs> no, no, it's just it's just wrong. You know, there's an angel that's wrong. It's the film. But I think in terms of the mood, and, and people wrote to, some people wrote to um, Capra in the years after saying, you know, this angel, got angels all wrong. They should, they, angels should look like this and not like that. And, you know, <laughs> and he pointed out, you know, well, no, you know, who knows what they look like? Um, you know, this is, this is the, the angel in the film. Um, it's, uh, but for me, it goes pretty right. Because it's, it's touching the possibility of, um, of comedy and the tragedy. It turn, you know, the, the movie, to use an English phrase, it turns on a sixpence. You, you take yourself to the darkest place and then you you, you turn it round into um, the possibility of restitution, reconciliation, of finding things, not losing them, of life, not death, a triumph over suicide, um, of 
comedy over tragedy. It's, it does all those things. It does it, you know, kind of scarily. You know, it's sort of a, it, it is really taking a risk in that sudden transition that it goes through. Um, and to me, Clarence pulls it off. You know, the film, the film does it every time. Uh hundred percent. It makes you wish, don't you wish sometimes you could watch, I always I say this, I'm like, wish, wish I could watch movies I love for the first time again. Because uh -huh. imagine going in to see It's a Wonderful Life and having no idea what it's about. And you get to this moment where somebody's going to commit suicide and you get caught up in the whole story. And then you get to watch the, like what a great device that is to bring Clarence in and essentially have, have you watch the whole movie again without Jimmy Stewart in it. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was talking to there's a there's a book club down in Texas uh, <laughs> who are going to read uh, a BFI film classics book club. They're going to read It's a Wonderful Life uh, in December. Um, and the guy who's organizing said, you know, I'm looking forward to it because I've never seen the film. And they, uh, exactly. I mean, <laughs> <what>? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah so, it's like, but that's don't you aren't you jealous of that person in a way? I am jealous. Yeah, of him. yeah I think yeah. it's a. I hope he likes it. But it's a kind of, um, yeah, I think it is, uh, you know, it's, it's such a part of people's childhoods. Right. It's almost, a, there's, no, there's no moment when you can remember first seeing it. It's just, yeah. it was always there. Yeah, you and, can't, that's the great point. You can't, you can't think of a time when you didn't know Ilsa was getting on the plane at the end of Casablanca. Like it just, that's what she does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, going back to what you also said about, about, you know, choosing to be naive and how you, you know, of course you can't choose, you know, a friend of mine says that the, the appeal of Spielberg in a lot of his movies is that innocence is kind of like something he invites you to be for a couple hours. You can enter like a door through the movie and like remind yourself what it's like to feel innocent. And that's what a lot of Spielberg has his power from. And it seems like there's something going on similar like that with Clarence. Yeah. I think, uh, I love Spielberg. I think he's, uh, yeah. I mean, Master Scorsese is still around, so I've got to be careful. <laughs> kind of one of the two greatest living American movie right. directors, and that he is, um, and and the most Camper esque. Right. There's not there's not much that Camper camper esque in Master Scorsese. <laughs> so that's for and sure. I think, yeah, I think for the reasons that you say, um, that's why he's so Camper esque. He does. Yeah. He allows. He's kept alive that element of the child in himself, um, whilst making. I would say, like Capra, really quite intense, passionate, questioning movies. Not, and I'm not only thinking of things like Schindler's List, even, you know, kind of uh, movies that appear to be more um, part of that naivety. They also have these, you know, they, they bring in vistas and moments that allow you to um, to think quite deeply and feel quite profound. Yeah. Why, right. whilst, whilst holding on to that, um, to that sense of wonder. Yeah, and uh, it's great to see in Spielberg. Uh, I guess E.T. is the one that re really leaps to mind with it, but um, but the Fablemans uh, also. Um, it brings in both both movies are bringing in the fact that families can break up. You know, there are divorces. People, you know, kind of things can go wrong. Yet they are in their hearts, like it's a wonderful life, celebratory, and the, and the celebratory quality in them i think it is something which is part of that sense of wonder which i'm calling childlike but it's not only childlike it's uh it's a great resource in spielberg and the camp yeah yeah it's a great well they tap into so the film is released and it, it has a certain kind of reception that may be surprising to some people considering its status today talk about you know how it was reviewed how it was received when it first came on came out yeah, there's a, there's a bit of a myth about the reception, and um, 
and how well it did. Uh, the myth is that it really bombed. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and, um, and the great contrast is that William Wyler's film, William Wyler joined this uh, kind of filmmaking company, Liberty Films, with Cap. Um, but he did one last movie for his previous company, The Best Years of Our Lives. And they're both films kind of about the end of the war moment. And The Best Years of Our Lives, you know, it won all the Oscars. It was, kind of, you know, everybody thought this is amazing. And It's a Wonderful Life became, you know, the other movie of the season. You know, number two, some way down. Um, the myth is that critics hate it. I think that's, one reason for that is that um, I think this is true for everybody who writes. But the only reviews you really rem- the re- really remember are the harsh ones. Yeah. <laughs> They're the ones that are engraved on your heart. And um, and Capra, in recalling the movie, he only remembered um, the harsh critiques. And there were harsh critiques uh, in America, uh, New York Times, and particularly in Britain. Uh, all the British, you know, when it came out in the UK, they, everybody said, "Yeah, oh, God, this is so American." You know, you, you'll like you'll like this if you like hot dogs. That's <laughs> one one wonderful review, which was seen as, as an exotic food in Britain in 1947. And um, uh, but actually, there were critics who stood up for it. Um, and the movie didn't do as well as the best years of our lives, which was an enormous hit. Um, but it did pretty respectably. It did okay, and it only looks like it was a kind of financial failure because so much, basically, the whole, um, the whole kind of existence of Liberty Films was hanging on the move. It had quite a big budget for the time. Uh, they needed it to make a lot of money, and it did make a lot of money. It made a bit of money, and that wasn't enough. So Liberty Films basically kind of collapsed. So it looks like it failed. Um, didn't quite fail, but it didn't do as well as they were hoping. And of course, that in retrospect can look like failure. You know? <laughs> um, right. But uh, but people were they they were much more skeptical about the movie when it came out. The critics, um, although as I'm pointing out, critics have been skeptical about the movie ever since, as well. If you if you just you know studied it in university, you'll be aware of um, of that ongoing skepticism. Um, but it did well enough, and it wasn't the total disaster people have said, but it was a, a relative, a relative flop. And what happened over time? Then how does it come to be this movie that we all have memorized? Uh, TV, yeah. <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, uh, it was saved. I mean, it's kind of it's a little, an interesting story. A lot, of, a lot of the students I teach are really down on the idea of copyright. You know how how can you right. own a song? How can you right. own? A- I was having this discussion recently. Um, they've never written a song. They've never written a song or made a movie. Obviously, then if they don't believe in no. copyright, <laughs> well, hope to feed their families. Right. <laughs> As I pointed out to them, I think, um, and they just lost. They were kind of slip ups with how the copyright was done with this wonderful life, which meant it came into kind of um, a copyright right free zone very early, and it started to be screened. Uh, you know, kind of every Christmas. Um, particularly in the 70s, where it became suddenly like a kind of festive fixture. You know, Christmas, it means, you know, kind of uh, cuddly jumpers, um, Bing Crosby, it's a wonderful life. <laughs> and um, um, so it's, it became a seasonal film. I think Capra wasn't only thinking of it as a Christmas movie. And um, there's something that really happened to it later, but, but it entered 
the national consciousness really kind of in, in late 60s, 70s, into the 80s, where, you know, it's what they're watching in Gremlins. It's a kind of... Right. <laughs> it's a, um, that everybody knows the film because it's just part of it's part of how you celebrate the season, and right. um, and that's that's really what turned it uh, around. Um, and Capra also and the other thing that turned it around was Capra had had become a bit of a kind of a curmudgeon. He was somebody who's you know kind of no he felt sort of all at sea in the sixties. That's not his era. He doesn't understand what's going on in Bonnie and Clyde, and oh, this is terrible. Um, but then he wrote his autobiography. Um, the name, the name above the title, and that really kind of um, turned things around for him. In that he became a kind of elder statesman figure in the seventies and eighties, um, uh, a survivor of that kind of those among those great Hollywood directors. Um, so there was a reevaluation of Capra, Capra, you know, and also his kind of um, his public persona changed a bit, became more welcoming and more more avuncular, and so on. Mm-hmm. And the movie is just, you know, that's why it's so strange that this guy in Texas hasn't seen the film, that you feel like, like you'd have to go out of your way to avoid the, <laughs> to avoid this one. That it, it became for so long so ubiquitous uh, as part of the, you know, of the season. Was it marketed and released as a Christmas film? It wasn't. It was meant to come out after Christmas. Um, right. uh, and some of the great Christmas movies... Um, you know, came out in the summer from that, that period. Christmas wasn't just for Christmas. It was for, right. for the whole for the whole year. Um, the film was going to come out in January, but I think they had there were financial troubles or production troubles of another movie. So uh, the release date was pushed forward. So it, it came out as a Christmas film, but but in a sense, that was that was kind of an accident. Right. Um, and now, you know, it is inextricably bound up with Christmas. It's, you know, it's a, what we think of it as which is so funny because you can't imagine like people like in a room trying to figure out when to release it and someone says put it out in july and someone has to say, wait a minute wait a minute this we're gonna put this out it's like now we have that joke conversation or that debate about whether die hard is a christmas like die hard has become a christmas yeah. movie because of the christmas party but obviously it wasn't marketed that way when it was first released no but it's a good way to make money because every absolutely every year you get another lot of if you can write a Chris, you know, Mar- that's why Mariah Carey is so happy, isn't it? It's like, right. Every yeah, right. Every year somebody all those three dollar um rentals from Amazon to watch Die Hard again every December add up. <laughs> so my last question for you, and I want to give you the last word about this. And it's it this because I think this is a quotation of yours that ties together a lot of what we've discussed on this episode. You say the film has come to stand for something lost from American life. So what is that? Yeah, I think what you've already mentioned, um, how polarized things are now and um it becomes an, almost boring to talk about how polarized they are they're so polarized it becomes uh, something which you know sort of is just it's part of the weather um so what i'm going to say i don't know what's lost for american life one thing i would say that's lost is the possibility that you can make something that everyone will like um you can make something that people on the left think oh this is a left-wing film you know great i like it Right. And people on the right will say, oh, great, this is a film for people on the right. I, I love it. Um, but without intending to do that, it goes back to this kind of um, this feeling that the film is is embracing uh, a feeling about family, a feeling about community, about friendship, about neighborliness. And I would say a feeling about the individual that, uh, and again, maybe it's something which has been lost in American life to some extent. 
a kind of when you start seeing yourself in tribal terms so the the left is often criticized for you know kind of identity politics and it has become very tribal um but then the critique of that tribalism itself becomes tribal and so suddenly you're in a you're in a paradigm you're in a kind of death loop that you can't get out of and um but i think the film is not interested in tribes it's interested in persons in people that's the great beauty of the film that's the great power of the movie that's why we watch it every year watch it not because it's set at christmas but because in this moment in the darkest time of the year uh, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere, as I am now, you know, it's kind of, it's dark at night. It's a huge storm here yesterday. Um, floods and, you know, it's feel, you feel like you're going into this dark period. In that dark time, the film, you know, turns on the light. And it's, that's why we watch it. We watch it for, for the way that it says that an individual human life has value. An individual human life has beauty and significance whether it's Violet Bick's life or Ernie's life or Uncle Billy's life or George's life. And I don't think, I don't think that's lost in American life because that can never be lost. But it's good that we get a yearly reminder of it. It's something that's a really valuable thing and, um, and long, may it, long may it remain. Michael Newton, it's been great talking with you today. The BFI Film Classic Study of It's a Wonderful Life is published by Bloomsbury. It's available wherever books are sold. It makes a great gift for fans of the film or like that guy in Texas who's about to see it for the first time. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks very much, Daniel. It's great to be here. <laughs>